A COVID-stricken mom with a powerful message. In hindsight, I wish I would have gotten the vaccine. Her reasons for avoiding the shot and why she regrets it now. Stopping the spread of misinformation. It's something that we don't do lightly, but we do in the interest of the vast majority of British Columbians. Quebec makes a move to crack down on anti-vaccine protesters. Will BC follow suit? And bold thieves caught in the act. Excuse me! You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with a powerful plea from a patient inside one of BC's busiest COVID wards. The unvaccinated woman is sending out a message from her Victoria Hospital bed, hoping others will learn from her mistake, driven by what she read online, and roll up their sleeves to get the shot. Catherine Urquhart reports. 44-year-old Charlena Merle is fighting for her life after being diagnosed with COVID. On Monday morning, when I woke up, I could barely breathe, and I could barely walk, and I knew I was in real danger. So I called 911 again. The mother of two was rushed to Victoria's Royal Jubilee Hospital. Doctors considered intubating her. I chose unfortunately not to be vaccinated because i thought i could beat the odds but also because i was terrified from the information that i've read online charlene's 13 year old daughter also got covid but recovered her 10 year old son tested negative the single mom from souk says she's telling her story in the hopes it will save others. I don't know if me sharing my story with anybody will help anybody, but I hope it does. And I hope that you never have to go through COVID because it is evil and there's no toughing it out. Trust me, I tried. Everybody out there, Please be kind to all your healthcare workers. They're doing an incredible job. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Now BC wants to prevent a repeat of the ugly scenes we've seen this month outside hospitals and even schools as people vent their anger about vaccines and vaccine cards. The Quebec government introducing legislation today to fine anti-vaxxers who go too far. And as Richard Zussman reports, our province is considering it too. Hey, this is, this is school district property here. Barging into schools, harassing healthcare workers, stopping patients from getting treatment. The ugly side of vaccine protests in British Columbia. And something the province is looking to stop. We are working, uh, the Attorney General and the Solicitor General, on legislation or perhaps policy changes to existing uh, regulations to protect uh, workers and those that are accessing those services. Quebec has introduced similar legislation where protesters would be required to be 50 metres away from a school site, a hospital or a COVID testing site. To think that protesters are going to potentially put, um, intimidate 
people from getting vaccinated in a pandemic is outrageous. It's something that we don't uh, do lightly, but we do in the interest of the vast majority of British Columbians who want to know that they can go about their business uh, free from intolerance uh, from a select few. The Quebec bill proposes fines ranging from $1,000 to $6,000 for those who hold or organize demonstrations within the bubble. The penalties would go as high as $12,000 for any protester who intimidates or threatens people entering or leaving schools, daycares, hospitals, and designated COVID-19 testing or vaccination centers. A similar law would be widely supported here. It's important that we see uh, some steps taken here that acknowledge that need for safety. There are patients and their families who are having some of the worst days of their life, and they shouldn't have to run a gauntlet of um, protesters. There are a few concerns about what the rules would look like. Unions want to ensure the law does not stop peaceful protests, is proportional to the risk, that it's time-limited and protects the rights to picket while not disrupting the administration of health services. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's take a look at the COVID-19 numbers for our province in the past 24 hours. We have 832 new cases, currently almost 5,700 active cases. 330 people are in hospital, 148 of them in the ICU. Sadly, five more people have died from complications of the virus. 79.9% of eligible British Columbians are now fully vaccinated. Keith Baldry joins us now. And uh, Keith, we saw Premier John Horgan in Richard's story there. He held a, a mm -hmm. news conference today. The first thing he did was call on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for money for health care mm -hmm. and for COVID. Yes. So we had the Council of Federation meet today. That's all of Canada's premiers. So they may have ideological differences, but nothing brings them together quicker uh, and louder than when they ask Ottawa for money. And that's what happened today. The focus on health care. Here's the current situation when it comes to funding health care between the provinces. The feds currently contribute about 22 percent annual health care costs. That works out to 42 billion dollars. The annual increases are tied to economic growth rates. That's a controversial over the years. And the provinces want an additional 28 billion dollars annually. Annually. Premier John Horgan, the first thing he talked about today was the basically calling on Justin Trudeau, now that the election's over, to start contributing more money when it comes to fighting COVID and funding health care. Premiers agreed there's urgent, pressing need to act on long-term sustainable health care funding. We want to do that, as we've been saying for many, many years now, through stable, predictable increases in the Canada health transfer. For too long, the federal government has been diminishing their contribution to public health care, and we believe that diminishment has to stop, and we need to get back to a better relationship where at least 35% of public health funding comes from Ottawa. So 35%, of course, is a lot. But keep in mind, when Medicare was first uh, founded, our public health care system, it was a 50-50 proposition. Ottawa has been paring down its contributions on a percentage basis over the years quite significantly. As you saw in that graphic, 22% now. The premiers want 35%. Justin Trudeau, now that the election's over, likely to have a conversation with them with the First Minister's Conference, uh, as they did before the election, called each other weekly. I assume this will be top of mind when they resume those weekly calls in the coming weeks. All right, Keith, we'll see what happens. Thanks for that. The Chilliwack Elementary School has shut down in-person learning for at least a week and a half after 20 staff and students tested positive for COVID-19. 
As John Waugh reports, the B.C. Teachers Federation says it's a wake-up call about the danger of the Delta variant and the need for a better system-wide COVID protocol and planning. Just as the school year was starting to pick up, a major slide in the wrong direction thanks to the Delta variant. There were already a bunch of cases in the school or something, and that's why they shut it down. In-class learning at Promontory Heights Elementary School in Chilliwack suspended until October 4th. <laughs> a hard lesson for students grasping for a sense of normality. My mom said I was near someone that had COVID, but I didn't get it. It is absolutely devastating. It's devastating for our families. It's devastating for our students who are just starting the school year. And it's devastating for our teachers. Now, Fraser Health has confirmed that the outbreak is the result of 20 COVID-19 positive cases among both students and staff. And while the Chilliwack School District said it was prepared to pivot to online learning based on the protocols it had in place since the beginning of the pandemic, the Teachers Association disputes that, saying they were completely caught off guard. Adding that while this school might be empty of students, the fact that there are teachers still inside doing their work is proof of that. Not only do we not have our routine set in the classroom, now all of a sudden we have to pivot to online learning, of which we had no plans in place. Then there's the question of exposure notification. And would the cases have risen to 20 if word got out earlier? The Fraser Health Authority had an obligation to contact the public about it, and they failed to do that until this morning, and that's unacceptable. Our objective from the beginning was to reduce anxiety, and we're going to continue to listen and respond. I think that's what people expect from us as well. A full pandemic school shut down on such short notice, leaving parents like Tom McGregor playing it by ear. We're kind of piecemealing uh, the, the care right now. I've got him. He's going to go down to my wife's work for a little bit. Grandma's going to come. With many believing the next shutdown won't be a matter of if, but when. There are calls to make changes to the play. Or risk losing sight of the Delta variant in our schools. John Hua, Global News, Chilliwack. Well, we are getting a rare look at a unique COVID-19 vaccination campaign immunizing many non-Canadian citizens. Global News was invited along on the mission to immunize the crews of foreign vessels in English Bay and docked at the Port of Vancouver. Amadagahi reports. This is a potential life-saving mission at sea. Once a week, a team of immunizers alongside logistics and support staff carrying some very important cargo. We've got enough for 100 seafarers today if we need to. Sail out to the many tanker ships and bulk carriers off the coast of Metro Vancouver. <laughs> Waiting for them on board are seafarers from around the world who have signed up for the COVID-19 vaccine. They're going to other areas that are also vulnerable where there is Delta variant that's, that's rampant and they are quite worried and afraid. Uh, then they go back to their families and they're worried about infecting their families. And so um, really this is our way of keeping them safe, keeping our economy going. Like any good crew at sea, the Vancouver Coastal Health team is well organized. Within minutes of arrival, the close confines of the ship turn into a makeshift vaccine clinic with a lineup down the hall. Now this vessel is from Greece. It's crew, about 18 men from the Philippines. Many of them have been away from home for more than 10 months at a time, and many also not vaccinated. I ask everybody, you have to write yes or no if you like to be vaccinated. So everybody 
agreed to be vaccinated. That's good. Amid the clear excitement, there were many questions about vaccine safety and efficacy. Our immunizers uh, are able to support and answer questions that might be overall about the vaccine or maybe specific to an individual situation in medical history. Vaccines are some of medicine's greatest success stories. There's absolutely no reason why you should prefer risking getting the virus over the vaccine, especially in this scenario. This team has immunized roughly 200 sailors on 14 different ships to date. It's good for everybody uh, because it, we are already protected. Thank you. Protection to keep sailing around the world at a time when their work is most dangerous and perhaps also most crucial. Emadagahi, Global News. Caught in the act, catalytic converter thieves hid in broad daylight with a lot of evidence captured on camera. That's coming up next on the News Hour. Another battle won in the war on murder hornets trying to get a foothold in the lower mainland. That's later on the News Hour. Also coming up, planning for the consequences of climate change and how we hold back all the water that could flood our urban waterfront. Right now, though, do you know where your catalytic converter is? The thieves sure do. Already this year, more than 1,100 of the emissions-reducing devices have been stolen across the province. The precious metals inside can be sold at a handsome profit. Kamal Karamali has the story of one such theft in broad daylight and right under the owner's nose. Bold, brazen, and in broad daylight, a theft of a catalytic converter outside a Surrey home Wednesday afternoon. And just like that, they're gone. The guy came out from underneath the truck. Megan says she ran outside her home to try and startle them, the entire ordeal taking place in under 30 seconds. It was terrifying. I think they just know they're in and out and there's they're done. They just move on to the next one. And who knows how many they got that day. In 2020, ICBC saw 1,060 claims of catalytic converter thefts worth nearly $2.3 million. 346 of those were from Surrey. We're only three quarters of the way through 2021, yet catalytic converter thefts have already surpassed last year's numbers. 1,189 claims worth nearly $2.4 million, with 222 of those in Surrey. This is our cat cage. Dove Demand owns a scrapyard and often buys catalytic converters. The exterior not worth much. It's the inside where the real money is. We've got platinum, palladium, cadmium, um, all extremely expensive materials, uh, more expensive than gold. In some cases, thousands of dollars per ounce. Demand asks his sellers for their ID, but that's all he can do to make sure the part isn't stolen. It's not for me to judge or, you know, be jury of, of who's bringing it or whatnot. There have been increasing calls to introduce stricter laws around selling catalytic converters, including making it mandatory to ask sellers for ID and report all sales to police. Even then, there's doubt if that would put an end to catalytic burglaries. It likely is related to the amount of money that people can make from catalytic converters. For Megan, it's a tough loss, nearly $2,000 to replace the part. It's a huge hit. Knowing it could happen again. Kamal Karamali, Global News. The increasingly familiar sound of gunshots rattled nerves once again early this morning in Surrey. It's the third shooting in the 8800 block of 140 B Street in just the past six months. Jordan Armstrong now with the story of a home the neighbors used to describe as a happy house 
now filling them with dread. A welcome teddy bear at the front door. A lovely manicured lawn. Were it not for the cameras, crime scene tape, and cones marking bullets, this home on 140 B Street near Bear Creek Park would appear bucolic. What did this very, neighborhood used to be like? Very, very peaceful. But not anymore, say neighbors, especially not since the beginning of the year, with three shootings at this home since March. Locals are frustrated and scared, so we've agreed to conceal their identities. It's pretty upsetting to hear, especially since there's like a lot of kids in this neighborhood as well. We've been used to hearing those kind of popping sounds, but and every single time we hear it, we like make jokes and we're like, okay, yeah, it's probably fireworks or gunshots. Early Thursday morning, the sound was gunshots. Two men, aged 23 and 47, were taken to hospital with non-life-threatening wounds. Surrey RCMP say one of the men was also shot in July in the driveway of the same home. This person has clearly been targeted and it is believed to be uh, because of their involvement in criminal activity. Uh, at this point in time, we cannot definitively say whether or not it is linked to the lower mainland gang conflict or not. Police won't identify the victims. A title search shows the home is owned by a Jivan Garsha and a Rajvir Garsha. Our attempts to reach them were not successful. The bullets in the March shooting also sprayed a neighbor's garage, but that time no one was hurt. With no arrests and no public motive in any of the three shootings, there's no feeling of peace for the families on this street. For instance, like a stray bullet or whatever, like you never know. It's like once it gets dark, my dad didn't let me go and get the mail anymore. And that used to be like something that I, I didn't mind doing before. Some think it's time for Mounties to put up surveillance cameras of their own as a deterrent to the shooters. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Coming up, an urgent call to protect black bears. What we've seen very sadly is that education alone isn't working. Why so many are being killed on the North Shore and the group trying to save them. And Canada's last known Nazi. Now that he's dead, the effort to bring others to justice. Still a bit busy here in Surrey while crews are on scene to a two-car crash. It's eastbound on 88th Avenue just before 128th Street in the left lane. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Surrey. Attention consumers, having issues with scammers, price gougers, corner cutters, con artists, or big business bullies, help is here. Ann Rua investigates consumer matters on Global News. The North Shore Conservation Group is sounding an alarm tonight saying far too many black bears have been killed by conservation officers this year. As Paul Johnson reports, they're urging people and the Conservation Service to find better ways of coexisting with bears in order to save the animals' lives. Lucy Cadman of the North Shore Black Bear Society Thursday told us the story of a bear they named Rufus, a young male who'd wandered into a North Van neighborhood recently for all the usual reasons. In these pics, you can see the tranquilizer dart that conservation officers used to try and sedate Rufus. It didn't work. And Rufus spent the next few hours doing his thing and alarming many in the neighborhood. Very, very comfortable, very calm bear. In fact, many of our black bears are naturally very trusting. As we enter fall, bear activity in the lower mainland will climb to its annual peak as bears spend about 20 hours a day gorging before hibernation. 
That means in places like the North Shore and parts of the Tri-Cities, unattended garbage, fruit-laden trees, and bird feeders will be attractants to bears. And in many cases, fatally so for them. Cadman says already nine bears have been killed by conservation officers on the North Shore. Check out this new housing complex here on the lower slopes of Cypress Mountain. All throughout the lower mainland, people continue to move into black bear habitat. And advocates are saying without some major changes in the way we interact with these animals, we're going to see more and more of them killed. A spokesperson for the Conservation Officer Service told Global News they understand how passionate people are about black bears, but their first priority is public safety. While their preferred option is relocation, bears that have become habituated to people in non-natural foods aren't candidates for that. So they encourage people to be vigilant about removing bear attractants. And if they do come around, Cadman has this intriguing advice. When you're in that safe place, you can make eye contact with the bear and use a deep, firm tone in any language. It's all about tone and persistently encourage that bear to leave. Sadly, that didn't work out for young Rufus. Deemed too habituated for relocation, he was eventually tranquilized again and then killed. In North Van, Paul Johnson, Global News. Meantime, conservation officials in Prince George are trying to figure out who's responsible for the cruel and unnecessary death of a black bear there. Conservation responded to a call about a dead bear in the area of the North Nechaco. Upon investigation, they found someone had shot the animal with a pellet gun that penetrated its lung. The COs don't know when the animal was shot or how long it wandered the area suffering until it died. But they say it could have led to a dangerous situation because it left the bear in an agitated state. Shooting an animal to scare it away is, should be the very last thing on anybody's mind. It could have suffered greatly uh, prior to its death. Well before that, the conservation officer should be called to, uh, to you know, at least get advice on what, what can be done. Residents are once again being reminded about the importance of managing any food attractants. And anyone with information about the shooting is asked to call the RAP line to report poachers and polluters. A crew from the Washington State Department of Agriculture has eradicated another Asian giant hornet nest. Taking down the nest was a difficult operation as it was located high up in a tree. The nest was near Blaine, just a few kilometers from the Canada-U.S. border. Inside the hive, one queen and ten combs were found. Those combs contained only worker wasps with no virgin queens or males. This is the third nest that has been found and destroyed in the Blaine area this year. Let's hope it's the last. Still ahead, planning for the day of truth and reconciliation. It's just taking some time to reflect. How to honor the meaning of September 30th, even if you can't take part in a large public event. And the young British Columbian who became the first woman to surf Canada's toughest wave. As the evening commute winds down, traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge, with just some leftover volume eastbound on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve. Planning a trip with BCAA Travel Insurance, you get free COVID-19 medical coverage and worldwide virtual care from BC's top choice. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. 
Well, in one week, Canadians will mark the first National Truth and Reconciliation Day. A number of ceremonies have been planned, and you are encouraged to honour that day, even if you can't attend an in-person event. Global's Quinn Campbell has more. National Truth and Reconciliation Day is just one week away. With September 30th coming up, it's just a day of honouring and recognising um, what that day really means. Lindy Shade, the Indigenous Student Services Manager at the University of Lethbridge, says learning about the history of residential schools is a vital component of reconciliation, and the day gives Indigenous people time to reflect on where we are as a community. For a lot of us Indigenous uh, employees and um, community is really around connecting with family, connecting with our children, um, if we are fortunate enough to have our grandparents, our parents, and just connecting with our family. Many Canadians will honour the newest federal statutory holiday. Shade says the day is much more than a day off work or school. And if you're unable to attend an event in person, you can still honour the day. It's just taking some time to reflect and um you know, reading up on some resources, that is, there's a lot of resources out there. And, and, and just having that time to, you know, to connect. For those who don't wish to attend a large event, but want to learn about reconciliation, Economic Development Lethbridge is offering a free Indigenous education training webinar on the 30th. It's really to give people an understanding of kind of Indigenous cultural issues, a little bit of background on, you know, the history of treaties, the history of Indigenous journeys in Canada. But then also give some real practical guidance on how to, you know, proactively and sort of constructively engage on Indigenous issues and be an advocate. The National Day for Truth and Reconciliation and Orange Shirt Day both take place on September 30th. Shade says a simple gesture of wearing orange shows awareness of the legacy of residential schools and honours the thousands of survivors. Quinn Campbell, Global News. And we understand these stories may be emotional, even triggering for our viewers. So if you or someone you know needs support, you can call that number on your screen, 1-866-925-4419. That crisis line operates 24 hours a day. Now, a Nazi death squad member living a quiet life in Ontario until he faced deportation to Germany has died without having to answer for his alleged crimes. Helmut Oberlander died this week, and Global's Karen Lieberman spoke with a Holocaust survivor about Canada's last Nazi and how there may be more out there. I lost my mother and my sister, and I imagined them being in a gas chamber hugging each other. The horrors of the Holocaust are never far from survivor Nate Leipziger's mind. One of the many responsible for the murders of Jewish people was this man, Helmut Oberlander, Canada's last Nazi. Whether he was uh, just a cog, the, the cog, the wheel would not be able to turn without every cog in place. Oberlander worked as an interpreter for the Einsatzgruppen Mobile Killing Squad, a fact he concealed from the Canadian government. He lived in Waterloo, had a family, and died this week in the final stage of a lengthy deportation hearing. From his family, Helmut Oberlander has passed away peacefully. In the end, he was surrounded by loved ones in his home. Notwithstanding the challenges in his life, he remains strong in his faith. He got to die at home, surrounded by his loved ones in a peaceful death, when we know that 6 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, anywhere between 1.5 and 2 million were shot 
in pits or shot in forests or fields by the Einstadtsgruppen. Four times Ottawa revoked Oberlander's Canadian citizenship and he appealed. Each time, um, Jewish so, advocacy um, group Neighbourth Canada was there. Where is the justice? We've seen this over and over again. Mr. Oberlander was the last known Nazi in this country, and this forever will be the legacy in this country, that we had Nazis in this country, they lied their way in, our government knew about it. Do you think it's possible there's other helmet Oberlanders still out there? Oh, yes. By and large, the vast majority of people like this were not brought to justice, either in Germany or elsewhere, but most especially those who escaped to North America. While there is no statute of limitations on war crimes, prosecution may come down to willingness. I mean, this has been going on since the 80s and 90s. You know, they're old now. They, they're not really dangerous. They're not, you know, criminals in our midst. They did something that they shouldn't have done. And um, that's absolutely the wrong approach. For survivor Nate Leipziger, remembering is key. The memory of what happened has to remain because otherwise humanity will not have learned anything. Karen Lieberman, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, there's a little bit more color and joy in the lives of some British Columbians facing harsh medical diagnoses and treatment. The garden and playground at Vancouver Easter Seals House has been given a $160,000 makeover. Over the past several months, volunteers from the Garden Club of Vancouver and Concert Properties have put in a ton of hours to revitalize the space, making it brighter and more welcoming and more fun. Easter Seals House provides a home away from home for people from all over B.C. who have traveled to Vancouver for specialized medical treatment. It'll really be a nice place for our guests to come home from a long day at the hospital or when they're dealing with medical news uh, to come and find peace. Um, the children that stay here will have a wonderful, safe place to play, get outside, get some fresh air. We host probably 30,000 room nights um, in a year, and it, it really helps in the time of stress and dealing with medical issues. Looks pretty beautiful back there. Just ahead, a young BC surfer conquers the slab. What is terrifying, but it's also what gives you such magical rides. The dream wave she surfed in a new film and what makes it so special. Also coming up in sports, Canucks fans cheer the start of training camp. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. The city of Vancouver is asking residents to acknowledge climate change and imagine a future with much higher sea levels than we have now. Yeah, the city is launching a design challenge called Sea to City. The project, planned for the next year, is the first of its kind in Canada. It's tackling the question of how False Creek will look when sea levels rise as much as 50 centimeters in the next 30 years. About 30,000 people including myself, live along False Creek, and their homes will be at risk of flooding when the sea rises. It's because communities know best what's best for them, and they know uh, often very well how they're vulnerable to work with people who have an historical knowledge of, of, of the areas and the lands and, 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 an, and an attachment to these lands. 
The project includes an activity booklet for children designed to get them thinking about what makes a great waterfront. You're going to enjoy walking along it uh, tomorrow. Looks like the weather's going to be great, even though it's the first full day of fall today, Christy. Yes, and it was a gorgeous first day of fall. And in fact, tomorrow, the second day of fall, is actually going to feel a little bit more like summer. So I really urge everyone, get out and enjoy the fall colors because we've got a couple of days of this and then it's going to turn. Here's a quick look at some of your photos. I can't get enough of these fall colors. This first one uh, from the Caribou region. Thank you to Bobby for that one. And we've got another one also from the Caribou. Uh, stunning oranges and yellows and greens and reds. Uh, just terrific. And one from the Carcross area up near up in the Yukon. So thank you to everyone who shares photos with us. All right. So, oh, there's even a rainbow in that one. We do have a rainfall warning for the North Coast region. That is for overnight tonight and through the morning hours tomorrow. We're expecting wind gusts from the south, gusts up to 100 kilometers an hour. So a very stormy night indeed for your region. These totals that you see here included the rainfall that you saw today. So there's the band across your area. And it is going to shift a little further south, but still targeting your region through the morning hours tomorrow and then it will shift a little bit further south still but you'll know that southern bc continues to be sunny so right through tomorrow and saturday as well we're expecting sunshine is not until sort of saturday night that we'll see that band shift down into the southern vancouver island regions and metro vancouver so a very wet friday that's for sure but most other regions will see nice warm temperatures we're talking about mid-20s for the interior and even away from the water in metro vancouver we could see 24 degrees and with the humidity it may even feel hotter than that 25 out through the Fraser Valley area so a terrific day that's for sure Saturday increasing cloud late in the day and we are expecting rainfall by Saturday night and after that by the way it gets very chilly and wet so get ready for it because uh and I just that's why I'm really pushing the fall colors over the next couple of days look at this one from the Green Lake area from Warren Low and this one too has some birds in it but this one you guys could probably see a little bit better <laughs> that's right as they fly south before that chilly oh, weather comes. You see them right along the yeah, I can see horizon there a little bit. Very cool. Thanks, Christy. She's giving us eye exams <laughs> during her weather forecast. Well, you can only imagine the excitement of Vancouver Canucks fans today as they lined up to watch the team's training camp in Abbotsford. Go ahead, guys. That was simple. Easy peasy. It's the first time since the pandemic began that fans have been allowed into the stands. COVID protocols include proof of vaccination, of course, mandatory masking, and the rink at 50% capacity. Pretty small price to pay for those diehard fans. Oh my God, so excited. <laughs> We've been waiting for this for so long. Yeah, and it's so crazy that they're here in Abbotsford. When we found out that tickets were on sale, oh my gosh, it's like a rush to get them right away. Seeing the players that you've been watching for a long time playing games, like just seeing them in real life is like a dream come true, knowing that they're right in front of you. We like to support our, our community and, uh, you know, this wonderful facility. And we also, uh, you know, love the Canucks. I mean, come on, we grew up with them and this is a great thing. So we're excited. So nice that they actually get to have fans there in person. Yes, yeah. that hasn't happened days. since, yeah, like just like the olden days. What is it, March of 2020, I guess? Yeah. yeah. Against the Islanders. I think that was the last game. Was it? Yeah. Uh, wow. But anyway, of course, and that's going to be the home of the uh, Canucks farm team this year as well, the Abbotsford Canucks. Okay, so the fans that went out there today got to see one of the Canucks' new players, and we'll be talking to him and about him, Connor Garland. You know, I've always liked his competitiveness. 
and uh, never mind the skill and, and the ability to create offense. He is not that big, but he is expected to play a large role for the Canucks this year. And later, a young surfer who tackled one of the most daunting waves on the West Coast. I've skated enough in my life, as a lot of Canadian uh, Canadian people have, but I've never done the bag skate, and for that I'm thankful. What's the bag skate? Well, we're about to find out. Well, you just keep skating. It's like it's like go. It's <laughs> sort of a marathon of skating, and, and a lot of well, coaches in up? hockey like to. Yes. Yeah. Yes. As a matter of fact, sometimes the guy has to come out with the shovel. <laughs> Not to gross you out. Or I know it's dinner time, but that's what happens in a bag skate. Uh, day one of the Canucks training camp featured some of Travis Green's infamous bag skates. He likes his guys to be in shape. And new defenseman Oliver ekman Larson was uh, left a bit out of wind at the end of one of those skates. But of course, at, uh, day one at training camp did not feature some of the Canucks' most important players. Bo Horvat was there, Thatcher Demko was there, Brock Besser was there, JT Miller was there, but no Quinn Hughes or Elias Pettersson yet. Well, perhaps the most noticeable thing about Canucks camp on day one was who wasn't here as opposed to who was here on the two on-ice sessions in Abbotsford. Of course, Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes still in contract negotiations with Jim Benning. Captain Bo Horvat, who was sick yesterday, couldn't attend media day, went through this exact thing a few years ago, and he expects it won't drag on much further. You know, for me, I, I really wanted to be at, at camp with my teammates. I wanted to... to you know, to be here and get to know the guys and especially the new faces and stuff like that. So, you know, that kind of played a big factor in my in my signing uh, before camp. But, I mean, everybody has their own ways. And, you know, I think these things take time sometimes. And, um, you know, again, we just can't wait for them to get back. 30-year-old veteran Alex Chason is here on a professional tryout. He has uh, won a Stanley Cup with Washington, spent the last few years with the Oilers, where he did score 22 goals just three years ago, and he is hoping he can continue his career by landing a spot with the Canucks. It's fair to say it's not an ideal scenario, but um, you've asked people that know me. I've, I've, I've had to, to earn to stay in the NHL, and... Uh, I think playing in the league is, is a privilege. Well, he's a fourth-line guy, uh, bigger body, good at the net front power play. Um, he's won, understands what it takes to win. Uh, you know, I think he's a guy that's got a lot of passion for the game. Uh, so we'll see what happens as camp goes on. It's a short camp, just two more days to go, but tomorrow we will see the first scrimmages amongst the players as uh, Travis Green experiments with some line combinations as they get ready for their first preseason game Sunday in Spokane against the Seattle Kraken. Barry DeLay, Global Sports, Abbotsford. Uh, the Fraser Valley Bandits used to play in that arena, but they've announced today they are moving to the Langley Events Center to play their home games Starting next season, as we said, they used to play out of Abbotsford for the first couple of years in the CEBL. But the 2022 season will begin in May in Langley, their new home. All right, Michael Riley is not the only reason the BC Lions are 4-2 heading into tomorrow night's game against Saskatchewan, which incidentally will start 7.30 at BC Place. And the pregame show will be on AM 7.30 at 
630. Uh, BC's defense is one of the best in the league right now. Ten picks and allowing only 17 points per game. And when they played the Riders in week number one, and BC lost that game, they had a terrible first half, but they only held Saskatchewan to one point in the second half after allowing 32 in the first 30 minutes. They've been um, opportunistic is what I would say, making big plays when they're needed. Um, there's definitely some things we want to get better at, but I give our players credit for stepping up and, and making big plays, whether that's a turnover, a sack, um, whatever. And we've, uh, we've come up some, with some big plays at key moments. The dugout for a All right, time. Toronto Blue Jays against the Minnesota Twins. Jays now out of a wild card spot. However, Teoscar Hernandez with that home run there to tie it 2-2. But the Blue Jays have... Line to Bichette at short. Oh, what happened there? A line out to Bichette in the fifth. So now Minnesota has a 3-2 lead over Toronto. 2-2 now at the end of four. All right, we uh, talked about... Connor Garland before the last commercial break. So now the Canucks have a Connor of their own. It might not be McDavid, it might not be Connor Hellebuck, but Connor Garland was a big pickup in that Ekman Larson trade with Arizona during the summer. He's not a large player. He says he's 5'10. <laughs> I'm 5'10 too. He might be 5'10 with skates on while standing on a box, but this guy has a never ending motor. He has no fear and he can score. Goligoski back in with Garland. Connor Garland to the net. Scores! Now that's a typical Connor Garland goal. Take it right to the net. But scoring is something he has always done. In fact, he led the Quebec League in points one year. However, Garland is also a player who many hockey people have had their doubts about. And it motivates him. You want to go out there and you want to prove people wrong that didn't believe in you. And fortunately, the Canucks believed in me and gave me a five-year contract. So... Uh, you know, you want to go out and play and prove them right because, uh, you know, not many teams have, have believed in me growing up and, and not many have believed in me in my pro career. I don't think he gets enough credit uh, um, in Arizona. I think, uh, I mean, he was our best forward by far. Uh, so I'm super excited when I saw that we got traded together. Now, if you're wondering why would someone who's getting praise like this have to keep proving himself, it's because Connor Garland is not very big, but he knows how to survive in the land of giants. He's feisty. He, he gets places, uh, gets inside bodies, even though he's small. Um, you know, I've always liked his competitiveness. Yeah, I've always kind of had a little bit of a bite. My dad played in the minors. He's a bit of a grinder. He's a fighter, so maybe I got it from him, or my mother grew up in the city, so I got it from one of those two. Either fighting dad or mom in the city, whatever the case. <laughs> He has a lot of spunk. Mm -hmm. per perfect combination. Thanks, Squire. Up next, a BC surfer making waves in her sport. Stay with us. This is BC with Jay Durant, brought to you in part by Fortis BC, BC's energy solutions provider. She is barely old enough to vote, and yet Matea Olin is making some big waves in the surfing world. Olin is a child prodigy who continues to distinguish herself as a fearless competitor. Jada Rant caught off with her just before she competes in the Nationals this weekend on tonight's edition of This is BC. It is considered Canada's toughest wave. They call it the slab, and it's off the coast of Tofino. 
and it was local girl Matea Olden who became the first female to successfully surf it. It feels like you're in there forever, like time does stand still. For me, like that's what it's all about. Each outing is fraught with danger. It's Canada's heaviest wave, meaning huge amounts of water pour down with amazing force, which could end up driving the surfer down extremely hard into the incredibly shallow reef below. They have a point up in a certain direction. It's, uh, it's all the same along the shoreline. With the slab, the consequences are if you take off and fall on the drop, you're probably gonna hit the rocks below. And help is not coming quick if something goes wrong. The location of the wave is is way out there as well. So it's um, far away from medical help. There's no cell service out there. So the consequences get real, really fast. Olin is a surfing prodigy. She first picked up the sport when she was only five years old, started surfing competitively at age 10, and by the time she was 14, she had multiple medals from the Pan Am Games trials, but she failed to qualify for the last Olympics. That kind of took me on a whole roller coaster of emotions this year, but definitely in the next few Olympic Games in the summer, it's a huge goal of mine. It's less than three years to the Paris Games, and as Olin strives to reach that elite level, there's always a very good challenge waiting for her in the ocean waters just off her hometown. It's one of like the funnest waves in the world, and it like even to this day, it's like that wave I find terrifying. But I'll continue surfing that wave and hopefully get it on a few like magical dream days. Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique about BC, email your ideas to Jay. This is BC at globalnews.ca. Her smile coming out of that barrel was pretty amazing. <laughs> Way to go, Matea. And good luck uh, at Nationals. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great night. Good night, all.